Welcome back to the podcast, and it's episode 67 with Pastor Elaine Briefman. She is she's a licensed counselor and a coach and an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. We talk a little bit about her call, but also we talk about recovering from trauma and spiritual and identity abuse, how, how to heal from that. Also, we spend some time talking about curating safe space and spiritual warfare. There's a lot in this episode. We dig into some deep things. And I share some personal stories from ministry of trying to minister to people who are struggling. I I just think you're going to get a lot out of it. You're going to need to listen to this episode a couple of times. If you have trauma in your background... I do want to just mention that she'll be sharing her story and she doesn't go into graphic detail, but hopefully hopefully also you're in a place where you um, have enough healing that you can listen to her story because it, it would really benefit you to hear what she has to say. Check out the show notes. She has an ebook that would be helpful for you as well. And her website, so if you're interested in any kind of coaching that she offers in this area of spiritual abuse and identity abuse, abuse, she does, uh, she does a six-month coaching program. I think she has some other uh, options as well. But just check those out. See what's there. And feel free to just reach out and connect and say hello. She's just kind of a fun person. So listen all the way to the end. Share it with a friend. And enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? And so I wanted to know also, do you know Belinda Robinson? Yes. Yeah. Uh, she's on my, yep. She's on my district and she's supposed to be coming on the podcast, but we haven't been able to connect up yet. So yeah, yeah I just chatted with her a couple of days ago. So that was my first meeting with her. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, well, I'm glad. Yeah, she's great. She's, she was supposed to be ordained last year, but you know, due to COVID uh, assembly was canceled. So yeah. And so you generally go for like an hour on your podcast? Well, not always. It just depends. We'll kind of run oh. through the questions and some people, sometimes we go a little bit less, sometimes we go a little bit more and then I, but I try to edit it down to an hour. So even if we go more then I just pull stuff out and try to keep it under an hour if I can. So yeah. Cause most of the podcasts that I listen to are like 20 to 30 minutes. So when I saw that yours was an hour, I'm like, Oh my gosh, you're like, this is really good. Do I really want to cut this out? And try to cut out all the ums and those things if I can, or most of them, not, not so many. Cause you don't want to be like, Oh, this person has perfect, perfect. speech Fish. patterns. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, no, I just made them sound perfect. That's all. But first I want to talk about your January event that you kicked off and kind of what that was, how that came about and what was the purpose of all of that. Let's talk about, and then we'll talk about like your call and, and what you're doing now and how you got to that place. So the this the January event, which thanks for inviting me, that was it was great to be a part of that. And so you 
you had 30, well, 31 days, because there's 31 days in January of women preaching uh, online. So virtual preaching, lifting up women's voices, which I love. And, you know, it's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Um, I have, I have, you know, men on the podcast also, but uh, I'm trying to edify, edify and curate women's voices is what I'm trying to do uh, so that we start telling better stories about women and, and their role in the kingdom and how um, we're making a difference, especially because some days it doesn't feel like we're making a difference, right? Uh, well, at least for me, sometimes it feels like I'm not. So just talk about like, what was the purpose of that really? And then how did that come about? Like, So the, the, the purpose genuinely was to give women an opportunity to speak because there's so many women who don't have the opportunity to speak and, and how it, it genuinely came about was I, I have several online Facebook groups for different um, women of faith. And in one of them, I have a masterclass, which is like a closed paid group. And we were having this conversation about how to lean into your call and what that looks like. And one of the women had gotten excited about being an evangelist and going into revivalism. She came back into one of our group discussions and said that she had gone back to her leadership who said, oh, well, revivalism is dead. So, you know, why bother? And, but she was still excited. And I was happy about that. She, she was like, she was like, but I'm still going to do it. And we were just sitting there thinking, okay, what should we do? And somebody said, well, why don't we just do something on Facebook? And I'm like, okay. And they're like, well, we could do like something every day in January. And I'm like, okay, now mind you, I was getting, I had COVID at the time. So I'm laying on this mattress at my daughter's house who had left for vacation. I'm laying there thinking, okay, can I do this? I've got nothing better to do with my time, right? And, um, and I thought, all right, if we do everything, if we do this and we just organize it every day in the, in the month of January, we could start the year off with revival and why not, right? And so I spent several days really, contacting friends who I knew who were good speakers, other uh, ministerial women. So there were um, marketplace ministers. So these are women who have, you know, uh, ministries that are um, business-based, but they're very forward in their um, faith. And then um, in four days, I created the group and had 30 speakers lined up for the entire month. And, and it was a fantastic way actually to start the year, which was already so tenuous with so much stuff that was going on in our culture. Um, to really know that every day we could listen to a powerful message of, of a woman speaking specifically on holiness. And yeah, absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I got to watch many of them. I need to go back and watch the last few days. Um, you know, the end of the last week of January, uh, we had some personal things happening. So and some yeah. of the women had actually had over several of them had over a thousand views per person. And wow. so I, I put it on a public group intentionally so it could be shared on or off of Facebook. So you didn't even have to be on Facebook to watch the videos. And so creating that platform, it was a public platform. Um, and so I don't, and some of the women, um, yeah, at the end, they were, uh, there was actually more people watching near the end just because there had been more attention to the event itself. Yeah. And you mentioned you have a YouTube channel. So did you put it on that? I have not. I did curate the videos, um, but I have not um, repurposed them just yet. So make sure you let me know what your YouTube channel is because I want to make sure we people can jump on there and share it. I'm sure you have some good stuff on there. Uh, I, I recently curating. found out that if you if you Google Pastor Elaine uh, imposter syndrome YouTube, that my video will be the first thing that pops up on Google. So if you want okay. to cure your imposter syndrome. I want to come back to that. So I'm making a note. I want to come back to that okay. imposter syndrome <laughs> thing. 
that's important. So you've curated this and you and you had a good response to it. Very much. So. Uh, I know that this came out of your it came out of your master class that you're doing, right? Uh, I'm doing a mastermind group too for people who want to start dinner church, um, which I started in the fall. So talk about how you how you got to that place because that is that's your primary ministry right now, right? Your primary yes. ministry is doing mastermind groups, master class. So you're doing a lot of training and curating what what's what's the heart of your ministry like do you have a name or are you just elaine ministry Pastor <laughs> what's your name and then so, like, what's so, so the business name is uh, fishing the number four truth fishing for truth and because i'm an avid fisherwoman um and I, I love fishing i i really intend someday to be a christian dr phil for my bass boat so that's my long-term goal <laughs> and so i um goodness if you think about if we go all the way back to my call and being raised in the church and um, i was adopted at birth by these people who took me to church all the time but i was sexually abused by them and so you know, my view of church was skewed. And so I was watching um, your talk that was in that, um, that group about how you had that moment. Why didn't anybody tell you that Jesus was God in the flesh, right? I had that same moment when I got saved. Why didn't anybody tell me that this was supposed to be a personal relationship? It was just all ritual. And so that day came when I got saved and I'm like, wow, why have I been here for 22 years and nobody told me that this was supposed to be different than what it was? And I went on this mission of how do we do church better? And here's this knowledge about this forgiveness and this new life and this renewed um, sense of self that I gained from this relationship with God. And I thought, why am I not sharing? Why doesn't everybody share it? I mean, I was like totally on fire. But the messages that I got immediately thereafter, um, and I think they were, and they were unintentional, but the, the day after I got saved, I said, hey, I think I want to go to mission and be a missionary because I, because I genuinely believed that if I um, was in a different country, I wouldn't be as tempted by the sin that I had in my life. Now I know that's not true. However, in the moment I thought, you know, I should be a missionary. And, and my pastor, who's the one who led me to Christ the day before, looked at me and said, don't sell your house everybody says that and turn around and walked away. And I genuinely had no clue what he even meant by that. I just wa I walked away and it was like a long time before I understood what he even meant. And nobody really talked to me about my desire to go into ministry. And uh, a lot of life happened after that. I had a lot of mental health issues because of the way I was raised and all the things that I'd gone through. And so I went to um, in and out of mental health issues. I had a lot of acting out as a young, as a young uh, woman and then uh, ended up divorced and figured I'm never gonna go to the ministry. It's just not gonna happen. So because of all of my mental health help that I had received in an era where that was poo-pooed by the church, you know, you're not supposed mm -hmm. to go to counseling in that era. And I learned so much. I'm like, wow, if I could take some of this knowledge back into the church and educate people on just some basics of, of mental health stuff that I would be doing something to help further the kingdom. Right. So I went um, through 11 years of college, plus all the extraneous training that you didn't need to take in the state of California to become licensed as a therapist. And um, at the end of that time, some of the regulations had changed for ordination. So I was able to go back and finish um, or start and finish um, the requirements for ordination. And so by the time I graduated, I had both. And really going into how do I now vest into the kingdom in a way that's practical, but because I was so highly valued as a therapist, I kind of got cubbyholed in that. 
And that's right. not necessarily a bad thing uh, because it was definitely important and needed, but that's, I, I never got to go and minister spiritually to people, which was like my main drive, right? Is to help people. My, I, I used to tell people, my goal is to take as many hands of people in the hands of God and the hand of God and join them together over and over and over again, as often as I can until the day I die. And I felt like I was stuck doing therapy. Now therapy is valuable. I don't want it to anybody listening to this to say that it's not or to misunderstand that. But my heart's passion was really on the spiritual realm. So as the years went by, I ended up being a very large church, being the director of the counseling ministry and had like all these interns from colleges working underneath me, all this kind of stuff and, and helping lots and lots of people. Um, and so still, I still just last week got a call from somebody from that town and I'm not even in the same state anymore saying that somebody referred them to me for counseling and I had to tell them, I'm sorry, I don't do that anymore. I ended up um, through a change of circumstances being in a smaller church and in a very rural town. And I, I was on the top of this hill where I used to go to worship and made a little video and it probably was 12 minutes long, maybe just about some insights that God showed me while I was sitting up there posted on Facebook and kind of shared it around a little bit and had over 1200 views. And I thought, you know, I could do so much more with what's already available to me and, and spread a message. Um, if I actually put my energy into that rather than into this um, small church that I was at, um, the associate pastor realizing that I really wasn't going to be able to go into a senior leadership role in the dynamic that was happening at the time. I actually resigned my position. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done because I love the church. I love people. I love serving communion, love praying over people. I love laying hands on people. I love um, ministering. And the verse where King David talks about, you know, viewing, being in the presence of God. I mean, I can't, I can't pull it up at the moment, but just being in the presence of the God in, in his temple it's like the desire of his heart. And every time I heard that, it would just like make my heart grieve that I'm going to give this away. But I knew that the calling was greater, that what I was called to do was so necessary to spread on a different level that, um, that I resigned that position and actually applied to do special service. So I'm still under the umbrella of my denomination, but um, I operate as special service specifically for clergy women uh, interdenominationally. And and so they gifted me with that, but I was kind of on my own on how to make that happen. And so um, I took some of the education that I had done in the local church and created an online program because God revealed to me that identity and how our identities can genuinely be abused. That if you have an identity, it can be abused and you're not even be aware of it by somebody saying something or a trauma that you've experienced or even watching bad television programs or whatever. And God revealed to me how damaging identity abuse was. And so I created a program called Identity Abuse Busters and used that then to create a coaching program and started that to morph out of, out of counseling, formal counseling into something specific that's going to help people recover from this really chronic low self-esteem that seemed to give them an inability to receive what God had gifted to us. The, the truth was not, they couldn't receive truth. And so out of that, really looking at who can I, who can I minister to the most and, and understanding that I'm supposed to be working with clergy women. It was challenging because a lot of clergy women are still in that, um, that role of pursuing 
a specific position. Yeah. Being able to say, I can help you expand that and, and look at options for you. It was very challenging. It's still challenging to a certain extent. And so I decided to bring into my groups um, entrepreneurial Christian women. So these are women who own their own businesses, who are very strong Christians and have an amazing testimony. And I mingle them together, which give both sides a benefit. And so I created multiple groups um, on different various levels in order to be able to do that um, qualitatively. Yeah. So you basically curate safe space, don't you? <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's, that's my, that my goal. And it's, it's a safe space, but it's also um, a space of hope and anticipation, you know, where it's a safe place for you to be who you are called to be and to express that but then also to find that mentorship and hope that you can fulfill that and to give you the guidance on how to do that. Absolutely. Well, you would know this out of coming out of your background and your experience of your childhood, that therapy gave you that safe space to not just heal, but then also to grow so that you can move beyond that and, and be everything that God desired for you to become right to, that he created you to be and i just that idea of identity abuse i think is so powerful there is an element of you know I, i've referred to it often as spiritual abuse where we take our power that we have in christ and we use it for ungodly purposes you know to control or manipulate um, others and I think identity abuse maybe takes it one step further because there is a sense of where our identity in Christ becomes skewed because we abuse that power that we've been given by God. Um, you know, and it just, it just happens that I'm going to be preaching in first uh, Corinthians chapter 12 this week. So, you know, the gifts of the spirit and of course, any, everything I've ever read uh, and any sermons I've ever read or heard or, Bible studies on that chapter, they're always talking about the gifts, the gifts, the gifts. And nobody talks about that those first couple of verses where it says, you serve mute idols. And then of course the implication in that second verse is, but God, our God is not mute. And one of the ways that he speaks is through each and every one of us. And he speaks through these gifts. And so when we abuse those gifts, we are corrupting uh, and corroding the voice of God here, you know, in this world. So Maybe talk about, I want to, I want to keep going there for a minute and then I want to go back to your call, but talk about the kinds of things that you do in your masterclass to help people with identity abuse. I'm guessing you use some of your um, skills as a therapist, a licensed therapist, and you still have your, did you keep your license? Did you keep it up to date? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so some of the things that you use, like practical things for people to begin walking in that newness of their identity in Christ? Well, thanks for asking that. It's because it is so valuable um, for people to really understand there is a way to recover um, from that. And I think primarily looking at two things, what is it that you genuinely believe about yourself? And then what is it that you genuinely believe about the character of God? And so I often will ask people, what is the worst thing that you think about yourself? And when is the first time you ever remember thinking that about yourself? And that is the time where there was a message instilled in you that 
most likely did not come from God. And if, you're, if your view of God is not healthy, you're going to believe inappropriate and correct things about God. So the challenge really is going back and saying, do I choose to believe what is true or do I choose to believe what feels true? Mm. So oftentimes these messages that we got as, as a youngster are, they feel true because we've had them for so many years. I feel inadequate. I feel unlovable. I feel re- rejected. I feel, you know, and, and um, it's a feeling. So anytime that something comes along that correlates with that feeling, we tend to agree with it. And if somebody comes along and say, oh, I love you, you'll have a tendency to reject that because you don't believe it because it doesn't feel true. So the vast majority of my time is really helping people understand that they have a choice in the matter and, it, and it's very academic in that regard. And it's not dismissing how you feel, but it's understanding that my feelings should not predict or dictate my behavior or my relationship with God. I'm and I'm assuming I'm gonna I'm gonna make an assumption <laughs> in the statement that I'm gonna say, but that our our feelings are not insignificant though. Our feelings do identify something that's happening and should point us towards. I oh man, I have to look and see what her name is, but she's a she's a counselor also, and she happens to have an Instagram, and so occasionally I'll watch her little things. Anyway, she was recently talking about this idea of our feelings acting as a trailhead, and so that when this feeling comes up, that that should be the thing that we say, okay, where's this coming from? Why is this here? And helping us to move down the trail towards, towards healing and reconciliation. Would you, would you talk a little bit about that, about how we can sort of being hijacked by our feelings, but we can, but we can use them to help us in that connecting the two basically. (laughs) So the, the thing that I try to get all my coaching clients to understand and repeat often is emotional maturity is the ability to tolerate uncomfortable emotions. So can we get to the place where we have an uncomfortable emotion and we sit with it and we don't respond to it? Can we, can we allow ourselves to experience the moment and say, wow, this is really, and label it, this is really sad or that makes me really mad, or that makes me very, and label it. And then say, so now that I'm feeling this way, what do I want to do with it? I don't, I don't have to respond to it right now instantaneously. I can decide what I'm going to do about it. And that's the one thing that people have the hardest time with that. Well, those that, that come to me for, um, you know, that type of um, coaching is, is really that emotional immaturity, which actually rolls over then into spiritual immaturity because, we're reacting on our feelings rather than what is what is fact in the moment. And so, yeah, it's our feelings are extremely important. They're, they're giving us very much um, a clear, clear information about something that's happening in front of us. But if we do not take the time to recognize how my body is feeling in the moment when that when that um, particular instance happens, and then why is that happening? And then what I want to do about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I have lots of thoughts about there's such a need for resources like that out there. Exactly. Uh, for, for so many of us, we, I had, we had a friend of ours four years ago who he'd come into the church, who was part of our congregation. And it was one of these where a friend, a friend of ours brought him to church, like trying to get us. Get, and so we became friends and we, well, it would have been like actually six years ago. And we befriended him. I mean, he, he was one of these people where I, 
I I use this phrase that the universe conspired against him. And I don't actually, you know, believe that, right? I believe that uh, God is in control and we have free will. But it's it's like the only phrase I can use that really kind of defines like from the moment he was born, you know, like he was brought home from the hospital and his mom literally handed him over the fence, the next door neighbor, and then just left and abandoned him. And, and, and so it was just like, that was like the start of just one after another, after another and abuse and um, which eventually led to alcohol and then drug abuse and then being in and out of prison and um, probably had severe mental illness also it is because as a result of many of these things. So we had befriended him, really taken him in and he was responding um, like, you know, we just kept loving him and telling him we love him and, you know, having him for dinner and those kind of things. And I remember like one of the last times we had talked to him, we were trying to share about God's love without saying, here, pray this prayer. And, you know, like kind of in his face and like his, the anxiety, like in his body, he could not, he couldn't handle it. Like he had never experienced people loving him for just him being him that he, he almost like got up and ran out the door. Like that was his body language. And a couple of days later, we ended up getting a call from the police and they, they said, you you know, your friend is here. Um, he got, you know, he was arrested shoplifting a steak and some fix a flat. <laughs> um, you know, he said, maybe you'd bail him out. So, you know, we went and picked him up and of course he was drunk or stoned or both. I don't know which. And, you know, we took him for dinner and it was almost as if being loved was so painful that he, the only thing he knew was to do something that would hopefully disrupt and break that tension. So we wouldn't love him anymore. And, you know, so he ended up in jail and we would go and see him and stuff. And, and he'd sit there and cry and say, nobody, I've been in jail before and nobody has ever visited me in jail. And I don't like, he just didn't know what to do with it. He couldn't figure it out. Um, it was so foreign to him. He ended up, so then two years or four years ago, he ended up overdosing and he was found in a hotel in a weird situation. Like he, he lived at that hotel, but he was in somebody else's room. He was wrapped up in a blanket. His, like all of his belongings were gone. So, but because he had a history, they weren't going to investigate. And I, I just remember being left with this sense of like, he is a classic victim of identity abuse that I feel like we need more resources to really be able to help. And, and I, and we probably did everything. We did everything that we knew to do, right. Which was to just love him. But I feel like there should be more resources for pastors, but also just for Christians in general. That, that there's a, a lot of truth in that. And, and people have asked me, you know, if I do pastoral training on the identity abuse concept. And so, uh, because it is a, like when I do it one-on-one with coaching, it's a six month program to make, take people from, I can't believe this about myself or have this emotional reactivity to take them individually through that process. Um, it takes some time. And so what I built inside the masterclass was all of those lessons and the videos so that the women can go through at, at their own time while I go in there and they can ask me any questions as well. Uh, one, one of the things that I wanted to respond to his story, which is tragic um, on so many levels, is that what he was experiencing was that if I have to receive this love from you, 
that all of this old pain is just going to come flooding out and, and men especially will run from that because they're not sure how to, how do I handle this? How do I handle this deep feeling of profound love? And I'm just going to cry and that's uncool and I can't do this and it's too risky and all these internal messages that, that they're probably not even aware of. They're just very subconscious because of the history that, um, that they've experienced the messages of rejection, the messages of impossibility of being loved at that level. And, and so they will, in order to keep people from loving them, they'll go do something because I can't, I can't feel those feelings that I just, they're, they're too big and they're too much. And if I think that if we can understand what's happening inside of them during those moments, it would actually help us help them better. Right. Yeah. Well, I was pretty sure that the response, like that he was responding out of that, but had no idea what, I mean, we took him for dinner. That was, that was what we, you know, and then we kept, um, you know, we'd leave bags of groceries at his door. I mean, he knew it was us, but like we just, we did a drop and run, you know, so he didn't feel odd. And we tried to give him things to do when he would come on Sundays that, um, you know, when we have a potluck and he'd help us set up and clean up and stuff like that. So he, he felt like he was contributing, not a charity case, but it was, yeah. Yeah, it is, it's, it is really challenging. So if you think about the emotional trauma, um, so I, yeah, the emotional trauma of the rejection is huge. So the message of rejection, and then you're telling them, well, God loves you. And you're like, well, how, how the message is, is that how can somebody who's so perfect love somebody like me, whose parents can't even love me who were supposed to. So the message is, right. is so deep and profound that it's hard for them to accept. Yeah. Oh man, this is just all so good. I'm like, uh, I could, we could go on this for forever. I guess I want to talk a little bit more about your call. I know you came to, you talked about, you came to faith in Christ around the age of 22. So maybe share a little bit about this revelation of, of who Jesus was, you know, and giving yourself over to him. and then. How did you end up navigating that years later? I am going to receive this call. I'm going to accept this call that's on my life. I, I feel I feel like there's just, there are women out there who really, and of course I, I would have that same, you know, that would have been my experience where initially I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to do this. And of course I had, I didn't have the language to articulate it. And so came back to it later on down the road. Um, and so I just think it's important for, women, but even men to hear that, especially when you come out of uh, an abusive situation, because there's so much that needs to happen before you're even really able to hear that call. So, yeah. So, so um, I, I typically start off by introducing myself with my, my childhood story about when um, my, my mom called me into the living room one day and I was about eight years old. And my parents literally grew I grew up in an era where you're to be seen and not heard. And they took it, they legitimately took that at face value. So my parents did not talk to me for any reason, unless there was a chore to do, or I was in trouble for something. And so I assumed as I go down to the hallway to go meet my mom, that I'm in trouble for something. And, and she looks down at me and she says, your brother tells me that your dad's been touching you. Is that true? And I'm like, uh, Yeah. And she looks at my dad, who's sitting on the couch behind her, behind the newspaper, and says, is that true? And he doesn't ever look from the newspaper. He doesn't twitch. He goes, I don't know what she's talking about. So we have this kind of weird conversation. And every time she brings him into the conversation, he never twitches. 
and just says, I don't know what she's talking about. And so, and then the conversation ended. So I go back to my room and what I realized because of my dad's line, it's important for people to understand it's the lie. The lie that he told was, was more damaging than all the other things that he did to me because he negated the reality of, of my message and my voice. And so I learned how to just be who anybody else wanted me to be. So it didn't matter which environment I was in, I learned to just be what anybody else wanted. And so I didn't matter, my voice didn't matter. And when I had something important to say, nothing was gonna happen. And so um, I learned that my value was based on what I could do for other people. And so I learned how to manipulate men. I learned how to manipulate people in general. Um, I ended up um, getting involved in drugs and promiscuity and the whole nine yards. Uh, year, so I, I, then I tell people, you know, about my ministry and all that kind of stuff. However, jumping to the end of this particular story, um, when I was 22, the police showed up at my door and they're asking me about this situation with my dad. And for the first time in my life, I told somebody the truth about what was happening to me. Um, thankfully, my dad did go to jail. It was, it was shortly after that, that, and my parents were so involved in the church and they were so good. They were such professional hypocrites that they, my dad went to jail during the week and got to come home on the weekends and still went to church. And so I had to go tell the pastor, by the way, did you know he got convicted? He's just coming home on the weekends and going to church like nothing ever happened. We were attending the same church at that time. So a lot of dysfunction on, on multiple levels. And, and during that time that my dad went to jail, I went to that same pastor and I said, hey, so I think I need counseling. And he's like, well, what do you want to get out of it? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. He says, make a list. So I went home and I made a little list of 10 things that I wanted to get out of it. And they had things like better relationships with my parents, better relationships with my brothers. Um, I had two brothers and we were all adopted from different families. We were like the three stooges. It was really hilarious. Um, I went back and he says, well, where do you want to start on the list? And I said, my relationship with God. Now, 100% honest. I had no inclination whatsoever to discuss my spiritual condition with my pastor. I, I, there was no thought that I needed to have any conversation about it, And God was not on the list. And he asked me, he says, where is your relation with God? And I did not know how to answer the, com the question. I just said, I don't know. I didn't even know what that meant. Now, right. I was 22 years old. I was raised in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, VBS, the whole nine yards. My parents... My dad's on the church board, teaches the junior high Sunday school class. Mom plays the organ all there all the time. And here I was 22 years old, couldn't answer the question. And he says, he says, well, did you ever ask Jesus in your heart? And I said, well, when I was five at VBS, my brother made me go down to the altar and I cried because he didn't want to go. And the guy that came to pray with me got mad because I wouldn't stop crying. And then my pastor goes, is that it? And I'm like, mm, yeah. <laughs> and he says, well, we can fix that. And I'm like, Okay. So we're talking, it's a very bizarre conversation, right? I'm going in there with all this other stuff going on in my life. And, he, and I'm asking him, I need to work on my relationship with God. I, I don't even know what that means, right? So we go into the sanctuary. We got out of his office, you know, down in the sanctuary, prayed at the altar, simple sinner's prayer. And so the next day was the day I went to him and said, Hey, I think I want to be a missionary. Um, he told me that night, he said, Go tell three people what happened. And which I did. And the following Sunday, we're in church and I'm, I'm reading, I'm singing the hymns. And for the first time in my life, I realized they're about me. Wow. These songs are like about me and my relationship. And I like, it was like, I woke up like, like I genuinely woke up and I'm like, how come nobody told me? So I had that same thought 
<laughs> why did why didn't anybody tell me? And right. I had all these questions, and people would get mad. I had I had, I had this one one pastor's wife. I said, you know, your husband said something like this this morning, and I remember exactly we were in the parking lot on Wednesday night. I remember exactly where I was at, or Sunday night. And I said, you know, he, your your husband said thus and so. And she turned around. And she said, if you don't like the way my husband preaches, you can go find another church. And I'm like, oh, so I learned don't ask questions. I learned, right. I mean, I, I, and I'm just like absorbing all this stuff and reading all these things and trying so hard to like grasp why are we doing church the way we're doing it? And I even asked, why aren't we doing house churches when in the New Testament at time? I mean, I had all these questions and people were just, and I was genuinely just wanting to know. And so as time went by, I ended up um, having some issues with church leaders that replicated the issues that I had with my dad, which, which profoundly impacted my mental health issues. And I ended up hospitalized five times in one year for depression. So I went um, completely off the rails by the time I was 30. Really, I mean, it was just, it, it was just horrible. I mean, I, I'm sure anybody can imagine that if you're hospitalized for mental depression um, in a mental hospital that many times, it, it was just horrible. Then I realized that my personal situation, my marital situation um, was just extremely toxic. And I left the marriage, took the kids with me. So I became a, I was a stay-at-home mom for 11 years, trying to be the good Christian mom, trying to do, go to church and do the thing and do the, you know, and it was just so unhealthy. And I left and decided that I needed to do something because I couldn't support, you know, four kids by myself. And then um, went into the education system for the first time. And so here I was 31 years old starting college and and completed that 11 years later with my master's degree in psychology. And during that time, I actually walked away from God. I had a situation with one of the pastors at the church and, and I was doing some things that I probably shouldn't have been. And, and he called me on it and, and um, he made some derogatory statements and I just walked away. I said, I don't need this. I'm not going to hell. I just don't, I don't, I just don't need this. And I had a friend who was my mentor when I first became a Christian who kept saying, when are you going to come back to church? When are you going to come back to church? When are you going to, when are you going to come back to church? So years later, I, I, I would always take um, my kids to church functions. And then when we moved um, into another metropolitan area, I started, I went, I went to this one particular church where there was a good youth pastor for my kids and my friend was there and she'd say, when are you going to go to church? When are you going to, when are you going to go back into the, into the ministry? When are you going to start preaching? And just over and over and over again. And I'm like, why do you keep doing this to me? You know, why, why, you know, church is happening. They don't, God doesn't need me. I, you know, I've even had people since then tell me, you know, God doesn't need you. He can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants. I mean, it's like, and then I just realized I was 42 and I can't, I can't recall exactly what it was. All I know is that there was this moment in time where I said, all right, I need to give into what I know I need to be doing. And I joined the church and got my local license, I think like in the same month or something like that. And I just dove in and I said, you know, I, I can run from it. Um, but I, gosh, I don't even know. I just, I get so emotional about it. I want to do well what I know matters. And if there was one thing that saved me, even during all those years of mental illness, it was a nurse. Um, I, I was like mentally checked out at one point, like legitimately in life's a whole nother story, but legitimately like checked out. And she asked me one time, cause this is like the third time I was in. And she said, I thought you were called to ministry. 
And I said, yeah. And she goes, how can we never talk about it? And I said, I said, because I don't believe on imposing my beliefs on other people. And she goes, you know, that's okay here. And I said, really? She goes, yeah. And I kid you not, I woke up. I, I like woke up at that moment. And I realized, you know, I am, I'm caught. I mean, I, I can't even explain it. I, I just, I went from this totally mentally checked out person to being awake and alive again to this call of God on my life that God had something for me, that my value in him was so deep, so profound. And being able to lean in that, receive that and own that, you know, I still had a lot of, a lot of struggles to, to go through before I actually left the marriage and then went on this trajectory of being able to be in a helping profession and then leaning into my call, wholly leaning into my call. And, and I had a, I had a leader, one of my leaders, um, in, in an event that I was at, who turned to the congregation and said, he said, you know, you have so-and-so who's really great da, 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 and looked at me and said, and there's Pastor Elaine who is just durable. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't know. You know, at first I thought, is that really all you can say about me? But I thought, you know what? I am so committed. I am so committed to the cause of Christ, to the message of, of, um, of reconciliation to God, to the healing power the the death the the death of the enemy's power in your life I, I mean that because I've seen it in my own life watched it happen and I've watched it happen with other people that I'm not um, it's not like I owe it to God because he's you know I owe him something but it's like he's gifted me and I would be remiss to not share it with other people to knowing the power and the depth of resurrection that can happen in somebody's life if the truth is made plain to them. And that's why I try to do all that I do to genuinely break it down into practice. I'm a practical theologian till the cows come home. I want you to be able to apply everything that I tell you. Oh, I think that's good stuff. All right. I want to come back to, cause I made myself a note and I'm now not going to forget. I'm not going to forget it. I want to come back to imposter syndrome. Cause you said you have, that's kind of how this got, is that kind of how it got started your video series with on the imposter syndrome or that's just one element of it? That's just one element of it. Yeah. Okay. So talk a little bit about imposter syndrome because I've heard few different definitions and not that yours is necessarily going to solve it all, but you know, throw yours in the hat with everybody else. Uh, so just talk about imposter syndrome, what it is and how we can, maybe one practical step we can take to begin overcoming that. And so the, the basic core of imposter syndrome is, is believing that you're a fraud, that someone's going to find out that you're not who you say you are. And the reality is, is that it, become, it comes out of comparison. I'm comparing myself to somebody else that I believe should be doing this instead of me. And what I help people do is understand that you have something to share with the world. There's something specific that you have and you just share it. And if you can just focus on, I'm this vessel of information and experience and knowledge, and I'm going to just share it with people, then you can get out of who am I to share this? Well, you've had your own experience. This is, this is coming out of your own experience. And so therefore you can't be an imposter because it's true about you. And if you say, well, I'm, it's, it's mostly a comparison about a role or a position and, and it's, um, and it's really a lie. It's, it's purely a lie to be, so to be able to say, what is that phrase? What is that thing that you're afraid that people are going to find out about you? That's going to make you unworthy of sharing this message. 
um, and really looking at uh, why, why shouldn't you? What are they gonna say? What are you afraid they're gonna find out? And oftentimes they can't even answer that question because it's, it's really, it's all in the self. It's all a self-comparison issue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have myself muted. Um, I, I'm like, I am going to just get myself one of those shirts that says you're on mute, which I said to someone, well, I said to my coat the other day, I said, I'm sure there are lots of people who wish I was on mute in real life, but uh, she's like, well, maybe we should talk about that statement. I'm like, oh, well, tomorrow, later, next, next time. So I guess I want to talk about what advice for people who, women who are pursuing a call, or I don't even want to necessarily limit it to women, but probably we'll be focusing on them, but women or men who are sensing a call to ministry, who know they have abuse in their background um, or some significant spiritual abuse in their background. So just advice on accepting the call and then also steps that they might have to take. I mean, I, you know, I, there was lots of baggage that I had to deal with before I came into ministry and it may be in, and that you're really kind of always dealing with, you're always processing it and refining it and yeah, I think that, um, you know, I was, thinking, I was thinking about this earlier, that a lot of men that are in ministry also struggle with this thought of, I'm not good enough, I'm not valuable enough, um, they're isolated, and I, and I was surprised, the more that I talked to people one-on-one, -on -one, how frequently they feel that way, and that, that sense of isolation, and, and, um, and am I really capable of, of doing this? And so what I try to help people do is focus on what are you called to do specifically? So my call is to revivalism. So when I look back at all of the history of everything that I've experienced, it's, you know, I want to help the church survive my era and I want them to be effective if they survive. And so I know that that's what my call is. So if you identify specifically your call, and I put this in a, I put this questionnaire one time inside of a group and said, what are you called to do? And they'll say, pastor. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean to you? We'll be in charge of a church. Well, but what does that mean to you on a given day? You know, what is it, what does it mean to pastor a people and to be super practical about that, super specific. And so if you're called to um, teach or lead or pray, or the, what are the behaviors? Because you can do that. Even if you have, um, I need to be careful about this, but even if you have mental issues and emotional issues, you can pray for people right? You can tell people your story. You can witness, you can disciple, you can say, I'll read my Bible with you. There are behaviors that you can do even as you're healing. And it's, it's important to really understand that you have to take responsibility for your own healing. Absolutely. If you know that you have issues um, and if somebody else has told you that you have issues, it would behoove you to go and just have that researched a little bit. Um, but to know that you can still do what you're called to do. And that's, and this is, this is like so important. I mean, I had, I had this conversation we had like 11 women on this morning, just really talking about what is it that you're called to do specifically and then go do that thing. So if you're called to preach, go find some place to preach. You can do it online. You can do it at your homeless shelter. You can, there's so many places that you can preach and, and look at what you're, you're called to do. And then when it comes to your mental health issues, I try, I try really hard to separate these things out what's your, your mind. So you have mental health. So mental health and emotional health and spiritual health. So mental is as actually a misnomer. When they talk about mental health, mental health is, can you actually add 
two plus two? Is your thinking appropriate? Can you actually think in a way like every other brain on average thinks? And then there's your emotional health. Do you feel and respond to feelings the same way as people on average do? And then there's spiritual, which is my relationship with God. Now your mental health and your spiritual health should not dictate your relationship with God. This is how much are you actually in line with God and having a relationship with him and growing with him. Um, really understand the variations between those. It will help you know where to get the help that you need. If you have emotional issues, then you know you go find help for those emotional issues. And so I don't want to say that you should be able to go into formal ministry at a higher leadership level where you're responsible for lots and lots and lots of people and not taking um, responsibility for your emotional health. That's not what I'm saying. You, you definitely need to separate those out and see where um, you need to find that support and encouragement. And then there's leadership skills. So then there's a skill set. So I tell people you need to have mindset, heart, posture, skill set. So your mindset is, are you thinking clearly about who you are, what you're doing, who God is, all that kind of mindset? You know, what, what do you really genuinely believe? And then, and then heart posture is your relationship with God. How is your relationship with God? What are you doing to maintain that? And then skill set is the skills that you need to be able to do your ministry well. And those are the three areas that I break things down. The one area too that I wanted to drop in there before um, I changed the subject is the spiritual warfare issue. We, we do not um, cover that topic at all well enough to help people understand when the enemy is playing with someone and they, they'll own it for themselves. They'll say, you know, I'm bad. I can't, my, my thinking is wrong. I, they'll beat themselves up and not recognize that the enemy is the one that's doing it. And I wish that we'd have more expansive conversations on that as well. Yeah, that would be an interesting, and we can, we can go there if you want to take a couple minutes to do that, because I feel like, and, and I'll even just say for myself that I have been most of the time I live on one spectrum end of the spectrum or the other in regards to spiritual warfare. So there are times when I I'm like, yes, this is a real thing and, and et cetera, et cetera. And then there are other times where I'm like cynical towards it. And there hasn't been, especially in my denomination, which I think we're the same denomination, right? Yeah. Um, there hasn't seemed to be a healthy middle ground of that. I guess, how can we help people find that balance and recognize when is this a spiritual warfare issue and when is this um there's some i'm going to use two different phrases there's brokenness and woundedness so i think that we can be in a place that's broken that's multiple wounds right and then there's a, we can be wounded where we're in a situation that's we've recently been wounded by something or whatever and we're processing it we're trying to heal so what how can we better distinguish between when is it spiritual and when is it spiritual warfare to say specifically and when is it man if i could find a, a coach a therapist um, a friend to have coffee with to process this pain yeah so there's uh, it's really understanding the spiritual realm and that was one of the things that I didn't, I didn't do. I didn't even know how to do until I had a family member who was actually manifesting right in front of me. And I'm like, I'm a pastor. Why don't I know what to do about this? And really saying, okay, if I believe in God, if I believe that I'm a spiritual being, if I believe Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive today, I really need to believe in the enemy 
to the same capacity with which I believe these other things, because it's evident to me now it's real. And having, having that conversation just even on a basic level is so valuable because we're, we're bringing to the forefront the reality that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We say these things, but do we believe them when it comes to living out our faith? The three things that I have that I, that I coach on is that your identity is eternally valuable. Your uniqueness is eternally valuable and intentional. So that's the number one. It's just, that's the thing you have to believe that God designed you uniquely. The second is the enemy is lying all the time, all the time. And, and to recognize that when you look at, you turn your TV on, I have to just turn your TV on and say, how many times does, will the enemy lie to you within a 15 minute time span? And, and what is the world trying to teach you? And what, you know, recognize that the enemy will manipulate all sorts of stuff, but he always uses emotion. And to recognize that when I'm tempted to do something, there's an emotional draw to that. There's always an emotional draw to that. And when we recognize that the enemy does that, we'll have a better clarity of what's happening in the moment. But not having the conversation, we're always going to say, I have a problem or I'm giving in or I'm, you know, but we have to look and, and you know, what is the enemy doing in the moment? And then the third thing is you get to choose. You get to choose whether you're believing truth or you're believing uh, your emotions, right? And so those are the three things that I just, that I, that I cover all the time. And, and so the enemy factor is so valuable to say the enemy does work. He, he's a thought caster. So he puts thoughts in your mind and we can either grab onto them or reject them. And just as Jesus said to a good friend, get behind me, Satan, looked him in the eye and, and just, and just called it for what it is. And we, and we don't, the, the fear of getting too, as they say, woo-woo-ish, you know, we're going to get up, we're going to fall off the bridge and, and become fanatical if we talk about things that are demonic. And that has kept me and I, from being able to know what I needed to know to help my family member in that moment. So I went down to the woo-woo church, knocked on the door and said, all right, I need to know things because I have nothing. And I contacted the people in my denomination and just knocked on all sorts of doors and made all sorts of calls and nobody could help me. And I was extremely disappointed in that. It took um, several months before I was able to connect with somebody who referred me to somebody in Israel, right? And um, But I went to that little church down, down the way and he gave me 18 hours of a spiritual warfare conference. And I sat and in three days watched all 18 hours because I thought I need to know what's going on and I need to educate myself. And, and it was one of those things I avoided. I avoided it because, you know, they're the weird church, right? They're the, they're, this, this is a weird conversation and I, I don't really need to know all this. But then I realized that I did. And I went on Facebook and apologized for anybody who had ever come to me with a spiritual issue prior to that. And I did not have the knowledge on how to help them. So there's something that you said, which I think, I mean, I think this is great. So this is not antagonistic. I'm, I'm trying to think of, I imagine there are people who, even in your situation, right, who your parents were, you know, your dad was on the board who would look back and say, oh, well, that was spiritual warfare trying to bring down the church. When there are spirit, when there's spiritual warfare, how do we, like my concern is finding that place where we don't justify like what happened to you or others by covering it in this language of spiritual warfare. But then also at the same time, we don't want to negate spiritual warfare. Right. You so know what I'm saying? Yeah. The difference for me is there's cause and then there's excuse. So I can say beyond the shadow of the doubt that the enemy had a hold of my dad. That's, that might be the cause, 
and a lot of his choices and a lot and we believe that he was molested as a child and just you know the generational all garbage right so that does not excuse it so we need to be able to clearly talk about the cause without talking about excuse um, and, and, and that's an emotionally hard place for a lot of people to walk, to be able to say, because I've, I've asked people, do you understand how this could occur? And they'll go, no, no, I can't, I can't understand that. And then because they were afraid that if I, that if they understand it, that means that they approve. And so the delineation for me is the difference between accepting this genuinely happening and then approving of it. So we can accept this happened, but we don't have to necessarily approve that it happened. And so when we talk about spiritual warfare, we can say this is happening. That doesn't mean that we accept it as to be right and good and normal and minimize the impact. And so, yeah, it's definitely the way that we talk about it. Oh, I think that is so key. So I really appreciate you just hanging in there with me um, as we as we move through that, because I think it's so key. There will be, you know, a lot of people who will listen, who will, who have been wounded by the church or people with it, you know, within the, the body, you know, have been wounded. And oftentimes the leadership when they went to, cause I have people sitting in my pews who they went to leadership and they, you know, they were to told that while it was their fault or, you know, they were, you know, all of those things that we've all, we've all heard those disheartening, ignorant statements in the sense of not knowing, you know, being uneducated and, uh, and not knowing how to properly respond to those things. And so I think it's important that we just make some clarifications in that area. So I appreciate you doing that because, man, there's just so many de-churched people uh, that we're ministering to in our community, our, our, our broader community, you know, beyond our faith community. And that's oftentimes what they will tell me. I won't come back because of, um, like, just even to walk through the doors, they begin to have an anxiety attack. And so I think it is important for us, which, which we could also even say, right, some of the anxiety is the enemy keeping them from coming back and being uh, enfolded, re enfolded back into the body. But at the same time, we don't, we don't want to say, like, we get it, like, like, right, like, I get it. Do you want to? I did that one time at, I had an altar call and I have this prayer of deliverance, which um, I'll send to you so that you can actually attach it hopefully somehow to this that I um, pray over most of the time when I preach, I'll pray this prayer of deliverance. And it's really talking about poking the enemy in the eye and then just receiving what God says is true. And in this particular sermon I did, um, I put them down on the altar, all the way across the altar. And I said, you know, the only thing that's keeping you from being able to get from your seat to this altar is the enemy. He's going to tell you, what are your kids going to say? What is the pastor going to think? What are the people in the church going to think? If your situation isn't that bad, you can get over it by yourself. He's going to continually sit here right now and tell you all of these messages to keep you from coming here and giving away the things that are keeping you from being all that God has designed you to be. And they said, and so you get to decide right now who's going to win that battle. And I closed my eyes and prayed. And the altar was just flooded with people because they realized that they had the power over the enemy's lies to be able to live out what they, what God was calling them to do and to take action for themselves. And, and it again was just another testimony to the, that we need to have that conversation and, and really elevate the reality of the way the enemy is playing out havoc in our um, churches and in just people's lives in general. That's so good. This is all so good. <laughs> I just want to be like, I just clone you. We just, <laughs> We just need 
we just need, we need healing, you know, we need healing in the church, you know, that grain of sand, so to speak in your shoe that if you don't get it out, eventually will wear a hole in your sock. So maybe if we just have, you know, a few more, uh, who are willing to say here, here's the problem. And here's a way that we can move forward little by little. We, we regain, we reclaim ground that the enemy has stolen from us. And that's, and that's why I, you know, I wrote a book and, and I tell people I cram, I took all these things that I would say to people over and over again. So people would come to me for therapy and I would be saying the same thing to this couple and the same thing to this couple, same thing to this, you know, I thought, what if I just took all of that and put it in a book? Because a lot of the books that you go for self-help, they're like, you have one book all about codependency or one book all about alcoholism or one book about, you know, whatever. And I thought, what if I take it all and just cram it all in one book? And I've always been accused of over-delivering, but that's okay. And so I turned it into a journal style book. And so I took these quips that I say all the time and then explained them and then asked a question specifically for your situation today. So every segment was just like two to three pages long. You can answer a question, how to apply it to your life today, like right now. And that has a little journal line so you can fill it in. So I jokingly tell people, you can pay me $250 an hour for one-on-one therapy, or you can buy um, 17 years for 20 bucks. And I highly recommend the 17 years for 20 bucks because you're going to get, because to me, it's a consumption issue. I was so distraught when I went to, got hospitalized for therapy that so many of the, as I, I remember just having another one of those moments. Why didn't somebody tell me this? Why didn't somebody tell me that over and again, over again? It's like, so if I can actually, capsulize a lot of this content that that needs to be told over again and then get it out to the people on a, on a better platform then you know it just opens up the doors for for much more healing within the church and so it is available as an ebook on amazon which um it was really the impetus of making that book and the interesting thing is the second book um, was supposed to be on spiritual warfare and it has never gotten off the ground and it's been five years <laughs> well maybe maybe 2021 is the year if nothing yeah. else, 2020 gave you lots of material to work with. So. That's true. That's right? true. So what's the name of the book? Um, so the name of the book is called Jesus is in. Definitely. I will put that in the show notes. I'll put your YouTube channel and your website in there. Maybe uh, close it out. Like I hate to stop talking to you because it's so good. <laughs> we're going to have to have like a, we'll have to have a, just a one-on-one zoom uh, another time, but tell me why the gospel is still relevant in light of all you experienced, right? Growing up in the church, being abused, all of that. Why is the gospel still relevant to you? Because there is nothing else that changes the heart of man. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. And the understanding of the depth of the love of God, because I am innately valuable to him because I exist and that he wants relationship with me, that he loves me deeply. And um, I do have a story that I tell about the day that God made you, um, which just speaks life into the reality of, of his thoughts towards you based completely on scripture and knowing that there's nothing else like it on the planet and understanding that Jesus paid the price for all of my junk and God, God, God showed. So another one revelation, God showed me, he says, I have better things to do with my day than look around at your junk that you keep trying to show me that I've already forgiven you for. So let's get on with it. You know, let's, let's get on with life and all the things that, that, that um, I have prepared for you and stop looking at all of your old stuff. I've, I've forgiven it. Jesus already paid the price. 
and he's ready to go play. So absolutely, absolutely valuable to everybody on the planet today. Yeah, that's so good. I think that's going to be my question, my closing question for 2021. (laughs) Why is the gospel still relevant to you? Thanks so much for sharing all of this. Um, But again, thanks so much for curating safe space. How awesome is that, right? It's, you know, it looks like Jesus. I, I, I love what I do. I love watching the women in my groups go from I can't to I'm already doing it and watching them explode with with um, what God has designed them for. So it's just the joy of my heart. Absolutely. Absolutely.